Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is the fourth sermon in our sermon series concerning the first letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. Our text this evening is one verse, verse 17 of chapter 1, page 991 in your pew Bible. Now so far we have learned that the purpose of Paul's writing to Timothy is that he has learned of a serious problem of false teachers at Ephesus and their misuse of God's law. And his descriptive conclusion on God's law leads him to consider afresh its personal application in his own life. And so he describes who he was before he encountered Christ and what he has been ever since. He expresses his gratitude at the amazing grace of God, the wonder of God's mercy toward him in light of the opposition that he had to the Lord Jesus. He writes that his entire life has been one filled with thanksgiving, not only for his salvation, but also for the privilege of being made an apostle and being given the necessary strength to fulfill his commission. As Paul recounts his own testimony, he is subtly reminding Timothy of Timothy's own story, what Timothy himself had been before he heard the gospel, how he had received mercy, and why God had had mercy on him. The content of their lives were different, but the pattern of their salvation is the same. And so, quite fittingly, the apostle moves from testimony to a final doxology, our text this evening. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Now one could ask why the doxology appears here. Well, we can see, can't we, how he's testified that God had rescued him from a life of violence and blasphemy, that he was ultimately condemned to perdition, but instead God gave him the grace, faith, and love which are in Jesus Christ. He has confessed that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and how the mercy of God was shown to him, the chief of sinners. It's easy for a personal testimony to drift into some form of self-centeredness. However, Paul ends instead with a glorification of God himself. He's explained the one true gospel, and now he worships the one true God. Calvin writes this, that the apostle thereby admonishes us all by his example, that we should never think of the grace shown in God's calling without being lost in wondering 
admiration. This sublime praise of God's grace swallows up all memory of his former life. He exclaims how great and deep is the glory of God. To put it another way, there comes a time to leaving off praising God for what he has done in your life and simply to praise him for who he is in himself. So the Apostle Paul does precisely that. He lists here three of what we would call attributes of God. His eternity, his immortality, and his uniqueness. Now, the King Eternal is how he begins. He begins with God's kingship to the king of ages, he says. God is praised first for his sovereign rule over the universe. Notice how he gives the title of king to God the Father rather than to God the Son. That's because Paul is alluding to the Old Testament passages in the Psalms and the Prophets where God the Father is identified as the king. But we must take care here to remember how the Father and Son reign together. As Psalm 2 makes plain to us, there is no no rivalry between them. This is a joint kingship of the Father and Son. And it makes it natural for Paul to go from praising Christ to praising God as king. Why? Because the work of the Son is to glorify the Father. Glory to the Son is glory to the Father. Now notice how Paul especially emphasizes its duration. God is the king of the ages. He refers here not so much alone God himself, but also to the rule of God, that his kingship is everlasting. His reign will never come to an end. He is the king of ages past. In other words, he ruled over the deep when they were formless and void. He governed the galaxies when they were brought into being. He was king over dinosaurs when they walked upon the earth, but he is also king of the present age, which commenced with the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is sovereign also over the church, king of both this age and the age to come. When, at the second coming of Jesus Christ, he will be enthroned over the new heavens and the new earth, and will rule forever and forever. God was the king, he is the king, he will be the king forever. No other king or ruler can make this claim. Every earthly ruler, a monarch, or president, or prime minister, they are temporary and fleeting. They are born, they exercise authority for a time, and then they die. But God is the king of the ages. Well, that raises a practical question for the Christian, doesn't it? Will we allow God to be our king, to submit to his rule in our lives and hearts, to let him govern our behavior, to control us and guide us in our work and life situations, in family and finance, our conduct, our crises, are always best left in God's hands. So if God is the king eternal, 
he can be trusted and obeyed as we are his servants. Next, God is also immortal. In Paul's doxology, it is God's immortality in his being and essence. Now, the word immortal here is more uh, a sense, really, of being incorruptible. It means that God, unlike the milk in the refrigerator, does not have a use-by date. He is imperishable. He cannot decay. Now, this makes God different from everything else in the cosmos. The universe is changeable. It's corruptible. And if scientists are right, the cosmos itself may drift into an entropy, a gradual decline. I don't need to tell you that our bodies are running down. The human body is corruptible. We age and then we return to the dust for which we were formed. To me, it's a little bit like having a shoelace that keeps breaking. Eventually, the lace gets so short as you retie it again and again that you no longer can tie up your shoe. In the same way, our chromosomes themselves gradually deteriorate until they finally can no longer reproduce and our cells begin to shut down. Only one thing can stop the aging process, and we all know what that is too, don't we? And that is death itself. So corruption and death, the ending of things, is a fact of created existence. Things fall apart. Persons and families, towns, cities, nations, empires, civilization, they all fade away but not God. God is not corruptible. God is not running down, eroding away. Not only will he live forever, but every one of his divine attributes remain undiminished throughout all eternity. In other words, God does not become less powerful, less loving, less just, less holy with the passage of time. He is every bit as powerful, loving, just, and holy as he has ever been and always will be. We see the question of immortality writ large in the resurrection of our Savior. He died, was buried, but did not perish in the grave. He was raised on the third day in an incorruptible body. By raising Jesus from the dead... God gives immortality to mortals as a gift. Jesus Christ was the first to be raised with an everlasting body, but he is the first fruit. He is only the first. There are more to follow. All those who die in Christ. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, the only epistle used in our prayer book funeral service. What is, sown is what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Because God himself is immortal, and we are promised by him in communion forever, he guarantees 
to us eternal life. Then there is the king, invisible. God is invisible. The eternal, immortal God cannot be seen. Now this attribute comes up again in chapter 6 of our letter. There in verse 16, God is the immortal king who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. That God is invisible does not mean that he is unknowable because there's abundant evidence for his existence. He has revealed something of himself in everything that he has created. And we can see the things that God has created, and we see them, our thoughts and desires, turn from the seen to the unseen, from the creature to the creator. And this visible creation draws us to the invisible God. Now, how can I say this? Because this is the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, where he writes, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Invisibility, therefore, is the essence of his deity. Therefore, God is to be praised for his invisibility. Indeed, it might be his most underrated attribute. Because the fact that God cannot be seen shows there are aspects of his divine existence that are beyond our understanding, beyond our scrutiny. Because he is without limits, without boundaries, he cannot be probed or dissected to our satisfaction. There are mysteries of God that our minds will never penetrate. But God has made himself visible to us, knowable to us in a real sense in Jesus Christ, who is both fully human and fully God. Jesus Christ is God in the form of a human being. Therefore, we can see him, touch him, and know him with our human senses. This is what Paul means when in Colossians 1.15 he writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now God knows that his invisibility makes him inaccessible, so he made himself visible in and through Jesus Christ. Calvin describes it much as a nurse at the infant cradle who will use a simpler language so it's comprehended by the child. In the same way, God has provided us with a mediator, both God and man, who can make the unknowable known to us. That's how John writes, doesn't he? When he saw God the Son, he was looking at the Father. You remember from his prologue in the Gospel, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then these words, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So to see Jesus in all his majesty is to see the glory of God. And the 
hope of every Christian is to see Jesus face to face, isn't it? And in seeing Jesus, to see the image of the invisible God. And then the desires of all the believers are satisfied. We know this because, again, John testifies to this in his first letter. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, verse 2. In other words, my dear friends, it's the beautiful face of Jesus Christ that the invisible God will be made visible to you. And if you know God through faith in Jesus Christ, then one day you indeed will see this for yourself. Isn't that what our Savior promised in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? Remember these words? Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. He's also the only king. He's not only immortal and invisible, but also incomparable. He's unique. This is the last attribute that Paul praises God. In other words, God has no rivals. There's no other being in the universe who shares the attributes that he's gathered together here. He alone is the king of the ages. Although God has given us eternal life, he alone is immortal in his very nature. He alone is invisible. The fact that he's eternal, immortal, and invisible means he is the only God and therefore opens to us the mystery of the Trinity. Paul's first letter to Timothy is among the many places where the doctrine must be true for a scripture text to make any sense. Here we have two members of the Trinity presented, God the Son, who came to save sinners, in verse 15, and God the Father, who is immortal and invisible, in verse 17. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity has a great deal of relevance for our salvation because each person of the Trinity plays a part in our redemption. The Father administrates redemption. The Son accomplishes redemption, and the Spirit applies redemption. And that's the reason why we are baptized in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But even apart from the plan of salvation, knowing that the one and only God exists in three persons is relevant to our worship, which makes it relevant enough. This is how God has told us to address him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We give glory to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we conclude the various parts of our worship in the liturgy. Even if we never unravel all the mysteries of the Trinity, we can praise God for the fact of this mystery. So Paul ends his praise of God by giving him honor and glory forever and ever. In other words, Paul is not just listing attributes as in a textbook. He is praising God for these attributes. He's giving honor to God for his kingship, his eternity, his immortality, his invisibility, and his uniqueness. To give honor to God, in other words, is to give God his due. It's to show him the respect and reverence his kingship deserves 
to give him his worth, which is what worship truly means, worth-ship. Glory refers to the radiant, the luminescent manifestation of God's majesty. So to give God the glory is to simply testify that he is indeed glorious. Our praise cannot add anything to God's glory because he's completely glorious in himself. But we acknowledge God's splendor and majesty simply for what it is. We do this with our songs and praises. We do this with our lives. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if God is the king of the ages, then he deserves to be praised for all eternity. Therefore, the destiny of every child of God is to be wrapped up in the adoration of God throughout the endless ages. And to this, we can only say, Amen, as Paul himself does. Amen is not an afterthought. It's a word of agreement, of affirmation. It means truly, so that it be, or may this be the case. So when Christians say amen at the end of a hymn or of a prayer, they are making that hymn or that prayer their very own. In effect, what we are saying is this. Yes, Lord. I give you my heart, from my heart, all the praise I have just uttered with my lips. The Amen at the end of Paul's doxology invites us to join him in response. When Timothy first read this letter aloud to the church at Ephesus, he must have paused here, I think, when he came to the end of the verse, so that all the people could join with Paul in his writing to say, Amen. Everyone who believes this doxology will want to add his or her own personal expression of affirmation. Truly, so let it be. May this be the case for me. And in so doing, make that personal confession of faith in the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.